0: Welcome to Supply Chain Connections. I'm Brian Glick, founder and CEO at Chain.io. This is part two of our conversation with Amit Daniel, who is the founder and CEO at Winward. If you haven't caught part one, go check that out. Should be right before this one, wherever you find our podcast. And in this episode, we're going to pick up with some extended conversations around Gen AI and the capital markets and some other Really fun stuff, including what we're excited about for the future. So I hope you enjoy listening in. And this will be the conclusion of the conversation. That global trade thing. I was at an event recently and there were a couple of very senior people from the U.S. government or who just like the U.S. government. And they were talking about kind of the broad arc of the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and where we are today. And they took the position almost as an assumption, almost as the starting point of the argument. Oh, we all thought global trade was going to fix everything. And now it is clear that global trade completely failed, which seemed very extreme to me. Did it? Because I don't feel that way.
1: No, I don't feel that way as well.
0: But I heard some like, very, very smart and relatively famous people saying this. It sounds like you think they're overreacting.
1: I don't think it could have fixed ever everything. Right. Because global trade doesn't fix ideology, Mm -hmm. right? If my ideology is you should be dead and I should get everything you have, (laughs) you know, that's not going to get fixed by selling toys. However, I think good quality of life incentivizes people to live peaceful in a peaceful way because you have something to lose. And that, my friend, is an outcome of global trade. Because the easier you can import and export and trade in the free world and cost of you know, selling it on the other side of the ocean is you know, more normal and there's less friction, the more peaceful and stable the world is. Because you know, if you don't have wheat, you don't have bread, well, that's an issue. So I think global trade and frictionless global trade underpins everything we have. Think of it like Maslow. You have the pyramid. So if you think, think of the pyramid of life right now, obviously, here downstairs, there's Wi-Fi, right? You take Wi-Fi, we all die. But otherwise, right, there's security. So I think that food security and that, you know, financial security, just that security. And as somebody who's lost a lot of this security over the last 52 days, I can tell you when somebody pulls a rug under you, my friend, you fall big time. So I think just the expectation of lower Trade to fix everything is just disconnected from reality. So if you have irrelevant expectations, you know, don't be surprised, all you right. get disappointed, but perhaps just set the right expectations. It's part of it, but it's not all of it.
0: So that security and that, you know, like having a job and, you know, a thing we went through here in the US over the last 60 years is a lot of the jobs, True. things like mining and what have you, there was always this discussion of, oh, well. In net, we're going to have the same amount of jobs, but they're going to be distributed to different people, right? That the person who is doing the mining is not the person who moved into the automotive manufacturer and then eventually into the accounting firm. Sure. AI, generative AI. I know you have a lot of thoughts and that people are seeing that as a threat to certain people's stability, but like kind of where's your head around AI?
1: First of all, I think every technological breakthrough is a threat to people's stability. I agree completely. However, you don't have a choice. Right. Uh, nobody has a choice, right? It's like, great, let's say it's a threat. Now what? Nothing. Are phones a stability to pigeons? Probably yes. You used to send letters with pigeons. Actually, maybe it's a benefit to pigeons, I guess, right? <laughs> Do the pigeons like to send all these letters? I don't know. Um, yes, absolutely. Phones and the telegraph are a threat to pigeons. For the job security of pigeons, 100%. percent right. i not sure anybody ever phrased it this way. But yeah, Gen.AI, first of all, I think let's take a step back, you know, Especially in logistics, by the way, but in everything, we have so much unstructured data. When I say unstructured data, I would say contracts, words, emails, everything that is not a table. Most of the technology people use, SAP, for instance, it's basically a bloody big table with a lot of functions on it. But SAP takes everything you have in life, all the SQs and so forth, and puts it into a big table. and allows you to create actions on it, like query this, query that, check this, check that. That's great. Beautiful. I think Generative AI has the potential to take all the rest of the world, which is the documentations, the bookings, the emails, you know, the PDFs, all that, and have the same effect that you could have today you know, putting everything into a big table on. And nowhere it is more relevant than logistics, where you know, I spoke to one of our customers this week and I saw, obviously you know that, right? But what does it take to move a box? Oh my God. I saw like quotes in five languages and three currencies, and five tariffs, and three agreements. And it's one box, one box, one box. You know, they do 300,000. That's one box. Just think of the scale. So I think that's what gets me excited. Is it a threat? Yes, absolutely. Now you have people reading that and manually doing it, like reading this document and calling this guy and this guy and so forth. Of course. Can be automated? Absolutely yes. However, I think history shows, and by the way, most of the executives I meet all say to me, we don't like cost reductions. So what is your response to that comment?
0: You don't like cost reductions?
1: No, it's funny, right? Because they never end up as cost reductions.
0: Ah, no, I've seen this argument. Yeah, they don't like you justifying your ROI by saying, oh, you're going to remove three heads because they never get rid of the three people.
1: Exactly, that's the point because of
0: labor law. I have personally kicked people out of my office for coming in and saying, my software is going to save you three people. I've watched the CFO did this one time. He literally looked at the sales guy and goes, which three?
1: Yeah, exactly. What are are
0: you going to walk over to the desk and fire them for me right now?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think he I can save you 10 hours a week. But I think life is that, especially by the way in logistics, these are hyper-specialized people. They might be working for you for 17 years. You save one thing to do. You may create three other things to do. You want to use them more efficiently. So I've seen people say that they don't trust promises for cost reductions. They trust. You know, things they can connect revenue to. That's a very, very different thing. So in my view, Generative AI VI absolutely is a threat, but you don't have a choice. So if you can't beat them, join them. I got to say, I think most of the people I've saw using, looking at products with Generative VI are pretty shallow because they're like, oh my God, let's use LLMs. For what? Let's do a chatbot. Okay, great. Chatbot for what? On our website, let's do a chatbot. Great. What's the value? What do you mean what's the value? There's a chatbot. So I think that's not necessarily the right thing to do. I think you should have a bit more imagination for that, but that's just hard work.
0: We actually literally an hour before we were recording this, we were having a strategy meeting for us for next year and somebody yes. was discussing threat of AI. Chatbot. Uh, we didn't decide to build a chatbot, but Ugh. there was this discussion of like, what's the threat for AI to our business as an integration company? And Good. Good you know, the discussion we had was, oh my God, if we were selling the world's simplest integrations, huge threat but it's the difference between driving a self-driving car on a course and on a road. When these things hit the real world, it's a lot more work than just writing the code, right? So
1: Yeah, of course, 100%. For what it's worth, and I think most people don't get it, there are not many, actually, Gen.AI products which make money right now Mm -hmm. because it's hugely expensive. So I think when building a product, you need to understand, and I've seen a company, by the way, in the space that has a great business that sells for $2 a box, but it costs them $5 a box to serve that. So, you know, obviously that's a challenge.
0: I see a flaw in your plan.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's a flaw. Well, obviously, by the way, the investors who gave them whatever, you know, just short of a hundred million, didn't see that flaw because the projection said at some point it's going to flip and it's going to make a lot of money. Simply, that some point was, you know, I guess down, down the road and they never got to that road nor can I see that road right now. Right. And I think that's also a consideration when you build a Gen.AI product. What is the problem you're solving? You need to make sure that the customers will be willing to pay enough for you to make money. Because I understand why it's good for Open.AI. I just don't understand why it's good for me. And by the way, the second threat is for companies. Because if you don't have a deep product, I think Gen.AI allows enterprises to jump a few levels or skip a few levels of innovation. Just throw an LLM on their data lake and ask questions. And that will kill a ton of startups. So if your product isn't doing something unique, sophisticated, workflow-wise, and so forth, but just organizing data, I think that's also a huge threat for you. But equally, you know, we signed up to a platform, a Gene platform on our internal data for us, mm-hmm. because I think you can be about 30% more productive. And if you think about, you know, the cost of capital and so forth, then if you can get 20 or 30% more of your people, maybe you can make more revenue. That's gotta be a good deal. So I think that's also another one of the opportunities, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, we're kind of in the same boat where we are using some very successful AI tools, really the off-the-shelf ones, but yep. they're individual tools, yep. but they haven't changed yet the processes we do. It's like, okay, I need to code something. Copilot's going to help me code it faster. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I haven't changed the whole concept of the fact that I still need a developer. And I think that that's the jump that people don't realize how far we are between the sophistication of the tools today and the, oh, I'm going to fire all my developers and just type in like a thought and there's going to be a company. That's the hype cycle that's going on right now out there a little bit, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a good book called The Coming Wave, which I liked about AI Mm -hmm. by Mustafa Suleiman. the founder of Reflection AI. And I think it talks about the convergence of Gen AI and biology and looks at what can this do. And I think in the next five or seven years, it can do a lot. Having said that, by the way, I think it's moving so fast that I spoke to a few people who've been building things since Jan that right now are obsolete three times. Mm-hmm. So when do you get into the race and at what point and what size of company are you? In my view, that's the right time to get into the race. Assuming you can build a product that adds value, otherwise just add cost. Basically, if you just add a chatbot on your data, it consumes like 50 tokens per query. You're just going to pay more and kill your margin with a high cost of capital. you know. So you need to be very careful, but also very imaginative. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: So let, well, let's talk about that high cost of capital for a second and the market sure. and the world that we're living sure. in. Sure. Because can you explain for the people who are not founders or who maybe don't have to sit with finance every day? Sure. The impact of what that means that the cost of capital has gone up to our industry.
1: It's very simple, by the way. I can also tell you on S&P. But basically, you can put your dollars in a bank and get 6 or 7% interest right now with zero risk. Zero, zero, nothing at all. And have it pretty much liquid. That creates an alternative, which is quite solid to alternative investments or to stocks investments. Because if you look at the S&P 500 and you take out this magnificent seven, it doesn't make much more than 7% a year, 8% a year. Last year was awful, by the way. This year is good. But again, take them out. And it's very weighted towards you know, Microsoft and Google and Meta and so forth, and NVIDIA and Tesla. So that means that there is less will to take long-term investments like VC, which are not really illiquid because if I put money in chain IO, I need to wait for your exit. That could be next year. It could be three years. It could be 10 years. I don't really know. And maybe I have a safer bet that is liquid. So less people want to invest in VC money or in private equity money. And their hurdle rate, because in private equity, for instance, they have a hurdle rate, which only above that they get paid a success fee, has gone up to like 12% because of the, the interest rates and something that's called IRR. So that means it's harder to raise capital. By the way, also in the public markets, you need to be a better company to do that. So in the VC model, companies used to die. Basically in the VC model means out of every 10 investments, one or two is tremendously successful, Six, seven die, and there's a couple that are like, okay. In the last 12 years, none died, like none. They always found people who are willing to put more capital in because the cost of capital was zero. So you didn't have an alternative investment could make seven percent so we were looking for that, right? The markets kept going up, so it kind of was a cycle with more money, more money, more money. The outcome is it's harder to raise capital. You need to look at the unit economics, like how much does it cost you to acquire a customer, all the SDR phenomenon which is just raising the cost of sales. So all of these fundamental economics, the rule of 40, which means EBITDA plus growth needs to be 40%, is becoming popular again. And that's why you see the pursuit of unlimited growth you know, going away a bit, because that influences everybody, because everybody in the market becomes more capital conscious, more investment conscious, because the valuations are dependent on that. They have less capital, less valuation. So in the public markets, you saw in Nasdaq, growth companies, The according to, I think it was J.P. Morgan, the growth halved from 38% on average a couple of years ago to 19% last year. Just halved. Why? Because the cost of capital is higher. People buy less. There's also a bit of recession because of that, because people are not spending their money. They're putting in the bank and getting 6%. So all of this is interconnected. The outcome is if you're in a company which is not well financed, you might die. And a good example, by the way, is Nautilus Labs. And I know the company, I think very highly of them. They're a great company. They're in the shipping space. They're doing decarbonization, fuel consumption. It was just acquired kind of in a last-minute sale by Danlek, which is a Danish company. And I suspect you'd see more of these. Unfortunately, it's not an amazing exit. And again, I think they're a great company and very smart people, but you know, sometimes it's just tough.
0: I think one of the things that I've noticed that I didn't understand when I raised money for my company, and that I think a lot of people sure. don't understand is that the hidden third party in a VC transaction is yeah. what's called the limited partners, yeah. which are usually a pension fund, yep. you know, a huge corporation, somebody who's got yep. a lot of money that they have to invest. And yep. those are when you ask like a random person on the street who may be generally aware of what VC is, you know, they'll say, okay, the venture capitalists invest in companies that's not actually true. Yep. Venture capitalists just direct the money from these big pension funds to companies, right? Yeah. Like it's not their money that usually that they're yeah. investing, right? They might be a little true. bit, but it's this kind of very cold world of talking about the percentages of interest and whatever is what matters to the venture capitalists when they have to raise their money, true. right? And and
1: the amount of people who want to invest in that, of course.
0: Yeah, and I think the public perception is much more of that venture capitalists are gunslingers than they really are. Right. Like, yeah, I don't think yeah. they're
1: gunslingers at all. And by the way, I think if you look at E2Open, which is a public company, it's really mm-hmm. interesting. I think E2Open, you know, right now the stock is at three point something, which means like a billion two, but they acquired BlueJay for 1.7 billion. Right. So just their one acquisition out of like 50 or 60 is more than the market capitalization now, right? This, that single one. So I think they're all the, Metrics have changed, which I think people have started talking about in the last couple of years, which is kind of our mantra sustainable growth, mm-hmm. which is how do you grow in a sustainable way? You'll bear a lot of cash, you have a healthy business with margins. And I think it actually changes the way you run the company because you're more cost aware and more capital aware. I'm hyper capital aware about every dollar. I think it's the right way to run a business, by the way.
0: As a mission driven founder, right? Both yep. of us, I think for me at least, I've said a couple of times this year, I prefer to operate in this environment. I know it's harder to sell, but emotionally I prefer because things make sense to me because people who are being successful, the ones who are being paid for the value that their product is producing. And that in my mind makes a lot more sense than people are being paid based on the value of how well they can tell the story about what their product might produce someday in the future.
1: Yeah, but that's also not because of capital rates. That's I think you're operating in logistics, you know, area where COVID was really like
0: an yes. outlier, yes. I
1: think. So yeah. I think I connected also to that outlier. I think broadly saying technology, and I've seen this through a few industries, sometimes had a lot of promise and also a lot of disappointment. So I think what you're saying, I'm seeing this in the visibility space where a lot of people, you know, I, know I see this company who they pay $600,000 a year and they haven't integrated data because they can't. For two years. So they're paying the check, but not even using it. That doesn't make sense to me. Or people getting data and not translating that data into an outcome. So I think what many traditional industries didn't understand is that when you buy technology, you need to change how you work. And that's the job of the CEO or the CFO or the COO or the CTO. You can't just buy stuff and not change how you work. That's just a waste of time. And also the tech companies, it's their job. And I always reference to my sales guys, you know, Challenger Sales. I like the book Challenger Sales because like the type of thinking, because it's about partnership with your customer and what are the outcomes they can achieve. And when they're successful or we're successful, Versus says, here, here's a product, come, you know, sign this, sign this, sign this, because they end up getting disappointed. It's always bad for the long term. I always play the long game, for good or bad.
0: I agree. Kind of to wrap up, like, what are you excited about? Whether it's with the company, whether it's with the industry, anything kind of like what's got you jazzed up?
1: Yeah. First of all, I'm moving to London with my family. That gets me jazzed up. I'll be 40 in Jan. So it's a fresh way to look at the world, You know, fresh opportunities, fresh area. You know, So London is a great place also for AI. So I'm jazzed up about that. But I'm also jazzed up about just the opportunity to build. I think right now with the revolution of generative AI, I think there's so much opportunity to enhance and improve things we've done previously differently. So I'm really invested in that because I think you can build a new generation of products to solve completely different problems based on the platform we've built. So I'm jazzed up about our size, a couple hundred customers. It's much easier to build a product that way, about the brand, the ability to build a global business. I also think that I just feel more comfortable and confident than I was before, like getting to where we got today. And I think this has been our best year ever. I'm jazzed up about the opportunity to build more and make a bigger difference. And I think on the global stage that's super exciting because it's just the right time. A lot of people try tech, they're disappointed. If you build the right value proposition, you've partnered the right way, you can make a huge difference. And maybe I'll just reference that and I'll finish that up. I had a really interesting conversation with a PE a couple of weeks ago and they made me, so what do you think about supply chain? He said, when you say supply chain, what do you mean? And they said, oh, what do you mean? We mean stuff in containers. And I said, uh, well, I think of supply chain differently. like." A cargo of grain in a bulk vessel is still a supply chain because it's used to make bread. So I think viewing the world through these glasses of supply chain is everything that moves raw material that ends up as a finished product, sourced to sold, and the understanding of how to use AI to improve that, reduce friction. That's a fresh perspective, not many people have, and I'm super jazzed about. And just the fact that there's a lot of
0: opportunity in the world, you know? That is an awesome place to wrap and really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's been chaotic on so many levels for you lately so we genuinely appreciate you being here and sharing all this with us and i could probably just your last three sentences there i have another hour's worth of stuff i want to talk about but we'll save it for another time save it for a beer my friend and uh yes it's again thank you so much for being here thank you so much well thanks again to me for a just tour de force conversation across two episodes here Even after we stopped the recording, he and I were just continuing to chat and so excited to talk to him more about all of these topics. So hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, Too much for me to summarize here in a short little bit. So we'll have again, links to where to find more content about Windward. We didn't really get into too much what the company does, but we'll have the links there for you. And again, thank you for listening and we'll look forward to chatting with you next time.